Welcome to the second season of The Bulb. If you've joined us on The Bulb before, welcome back. If you're a new listener, we're pleased to have you. Season 1 listeners will remember the diversity of our first audio outings. We journeyed back in time to learn more about the history of Queensland's service landscape and explored the personal history of one of our state's notable figures in responding to gendered violence. We were inspired by contemporary leadership in the sector and heard the warm conversation of our First Nations colleagues who shared their practice wisdom. 2020 will be remembered by our world as the year of COVID and how we communicate with men who use violence when face-to-face engagement is not possible was a topic we could not ignore. If you missed season one, don't worry, you can still access these fascinating podcasts. For those who have yet to subscribe, we suggest you do so by tapping that subscribe button. Then you'll get notified of each new release of the Bulb podcast as season two and beyond unfold. In this second season, you can expect more variety. And don't be surprised if you hear new accents as an international research colleague or two join us. Oh, and be prepared for some familiar voices too, as we hear from our friends in practice and academia. Hello, Season 2. Betty Taylor, welcome to The Bulb. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Colleen. It's a pleasure to be here. Betty, many of our listeners would say that you're a woman who needs no introduction, but for listeners who may not know you, could you tell us a little bit about Betty Taylor, please? Okay. Well, I've been doing domestic violence work on on many levels for well over 30 years, you know, working in frontline services, setting up and managing services right through um, to, I guess, um, more importantly now training and looking at breaking new ground with new initiatives and new ways that we can respond better. So we know that one of the um, passions in your life at the moment is the Red Rose Foundation. What led to the establishment of, of, of Red Rose? What does it mean for you? Okay, the Red Rose Foundation was um, established in 2016. So you could think it's fairly new, but actually everyone involved goes way before that. And we were a group here in Queensland that had the aim of two things. We were the Domestic Violence Death Review Action Group and we were looking at, I guess, lobbying government to implement a Domestic Violence Death Review Board Um, which I've had the pleasure of sitting on since its establishment, and the introduction of a standalone strangulation offence. Once they were introduced through Not Now, Not Ever, we convened and we said, okay, we've achieved those aims. Is that the end of it? Is that all we need to do? And we said, no, we know that most domestic violence deaths, I'd say the majority of them, are predictable and preventable. And so what is it about those deaths? What can we do? How can we learn from women who have 
died, but also women who've experienced very, very high-risk domestic violence, that we can improve responses. Because I think if we can re improve responses at that end, we're going to make it safer for everyone. The Red Rose Foundation is, as I said before, one of a, a passion, for want of a better term, and and it's it's now, I guess, a key part of your life. What are some of the current projects that the Red Rose Foundation is is undertaking, or are, yeah, or any future projects that you might want to tease our okay. listeners with? Um, yeah. So when we started down the track of, of homicide prevention, it was primarily had a big focus on community awareness and education and training, we saw ourselves as um, wanting to break ground on training, particularly around understanding and responding to non-lethal strangulation. So we, um, in the early days, never saw ourselves as a frontline service. We saw ourselves as community education and training. The more we um, forged into particularly the strangulation arena, because no one else was doing that. Um, we formed a partnership with the Institute for Strangulation Prevention in San Diego and um, brought the trainers from there to Australia several times. Um, what that led to unexpectedly, although it should have been expectedly, was women who'd been strangled coming to us, that they were coming to us through social media, our website, um, and then gradually getting referrals from people like police, child safety. And so we gathered those women together and formed a strangulation survivor group. And I guess we've learned so much from those women that initially we were talking about working in high risk. And but what we quickly understood is we're also working with high harm. And I don't believe there's enough being done out there around high harm. And what I mean by that is women at high risk can be supported to leave, to go to shelter, maybe go to a high risk team, um, court orders, interventions with police, charges, etc. But high harm is actually looking at the long term physical and emotional impact for victims um and what that's doing to them and from strangulation you know we've now branching out looking at things like um an oxic brain injury um strokes that are coming to us up to 12 months after the event so for us our work with victims has now certainly come to the forefront during covid we started an online support group for strangulation survivors that has now over 50 women in that group. Um, we've now established our own strangulation trauma centre. That was um, my vision that I've felt women who'd been strangled came from different circumstances and that has been proved. You know, we've um, had the privilege of establishing a research partnership with CQU um, and that research findings um, are yet to come out. But what we know from the women is the majority of women in that group were um, women in full-time employment, um, professional women, a lot of them, 
And what we have found, a couple of things. None of those women have been able to go back to full-time work, that it has impacted on them both physically and psychologically. But we've also found that, you know, um, for a lot of victims of domestic violence, we, you know, it was ourselves included, felt that they needed a lot of work around trauma and post-traumatic stress. But actually we're finding that for a lot, um, it's more than that. They've got anoxic brain injuries. That some of the behaviours that can get picked up and would, on outward appearance, seem to be trauma is actually a brain injury and um, that's an area that we want to forge more into. So we've established a strangulation um, trauma centre. We have written programs solely around group work with strangulation survivors. So that work is quite different. And next month we'll be running at least two groups a month face-to-face and we'll be uh, running a facilitated group online. That's incredible. And I think too, you know, in terms of the Red Rose Foundation, you've really harnessed quite a capacity now of, of expertise and energy around you. Is, is that true? Yes, absolutely. We're an unfunded organisation, um, reliant on volunteers, and we use the word volunteers a bit cautiously. We probably refer to them as our team members because we have people with masters in clinical psychology, masters in social work. Um, we have people who are employed in paid employment, maybe three or four days a week and donate a day or two days to us. Um, we're forging links um, with places like the Stroke Foundation and reaching out to the Brain Injury Foundation that we want to go into um, places that we believe we can partner with to gain our better understanding. You know, we believe we need a whole lot more research in this area. This is an Australian first, our centre. Um, so it is, you know, growing slowly um, because it, it's new ground. Um, we have our colleagues in the US um, who have been incredible supporters and they're all world renowned for what they do. But here in Australia, it is a fledgling field that, um, but it's an important field. When we see the number of cases going to the courts, et cetera. And, you know, women are treated like they're, um, and I don't want to be demissive of anyone going to court, but, you know, there is a lack of understanding through the courts of what strangulation has impacted on them and their ability to um, coherently enter into those places. And I guess a whole range of other behaviours that we take as everyday behaviours and our interactions which we regard as typical interactions are then no longer the same after a person's had a brain injury. Parenting, Absolutely. learning, yeah, the things we take for granted. Yes, you know, concentration, memory loss, um, you know, even things like, um, particularly in strangulation if they've been unconscious, you know, the memory call, recall's not there. Um, they just don't remember, or if they do, it comes back slowly. So wanting to go back and change statements, add to statements, should all 
be the norm for someone who's got a brain injury or been unconscious, but unfortunately um, it's not. It can lead to a lot of frustration, I suppose, with people working with strangulation survivors and not understanding you're also working with someone with a potential brain injury. Um, other women may need, you know, a raft of different types of surgery for, you know, injuries to the throat, to the higher bone, vocal cord dysfunction, um, hearing loss, trouble with eyesight. So that's sort of some of the work we're doing there, but we're also forging ahead and developing our training with around strangulation and getting that out into wider and wider audiences. Um, last year, I wrote a training module for um, hairdressers with hearts, looking to get that into a, a um, accredited training program for hairdressers that, you know, there can be so many signs and symptoms for hairdressers to notice um, because they're going to have, you know, neck high injuries that, you know, that they're in an ideal place also to recognise that. So the Red Rose Foundation is, is very active. It's really got lots of initiatives under its um, umbrella, I guess. What makes the Red Rose Foundation and this work different from other services that are currently operating, Betty? I think what's, um, there's several points of difference. I think as I've you know, been talking about that specialisation in strangulation that um, there can be many services that respond at the point of crisis, um, do the referrals to a high-risk team, and I think all that's admirable. But I think, um, you know, we talk about not only high-risk, but also high-harm. Um, you know, how the centre is working is that um, we have virtually three separate teams. We have a team that does the groups and eventually will do individual counselling. Um, we have another team that will do um, police and court advocacy, but around the offences relating to non-lethal strangulation and following that through to the district courts. And we were starting to build up a team looking at health. So working, you know, with um, women around their um, post-discharge plans from um, ED departments, working um, with women that around even putting cases to GPs and how they might follow through with, um, you know, the right testing, etc. So we're hoping to be able to provide that really holistic um, response, I guess. But on the other hand, we're also doing, you know, education not just in Queensland but across Australia on strangulation strangulation intervention but high risk high harm and I guess the other point of difference is you know as a statewide organization like yourselves you know we work at the coalface with organizations out there and have some incredible partnerships and um you know a lot of notable ones but one has been with the local government association of Queensland to get our red benches out there. And the red benches are now, I think, one of the primary domestic violence awareness, awareness initiative, initiatives across the state. Um, we have almost 
200 red benches and they're moving into New South Wales. We have one down in South Australia. The red benches started out with local government and it has that message, domestic violence, let's change the ending because we believe we can. And so there was launches and um, events around the red bench. But now they've taken on a different life. They are now um, state government organisations have them, um, sporting clubs, schools, churches. Um, so each one has been quite unique and quite different. We've had a couple of schools where the students have actually made the bench and they've launched that within the school community. Um, we're talking to schools about moving um, I guess not just relationship education, but anti-violence education out of the classroom to the red bench, looking at lessons on the red bench. Um, so we're planning to um, create a awareness video about how interviewing people about conversations on the red bench, you know, how people have taken the red bench, used it in their communities and because it's permanent, it's there all the time and they can um, have their own little events around the red bench and have those all important conversations we've all got to have about stopping violence. The power of place, hey, and connection back to where people actually are. That's a, that's a great story, Betty. You, uh, you may have already talked to this somewhat, but when we were planning for this podcast, we spoke about your commitment to improving practitioners' understanding of risk and you're doing specific work there and in particular you you have a focus on the S's. You've teased out one of those quite a bit. I wonder if you could talk to the other S's and their relationship to risk for us, please, Betty. Yeah, okay. And as I said, all of this has come from either death review reports or research. So, um, you know, the highest is separation, the S for separation, that, you know, that old question about why doesn't she leave? And we know when women leave, they're at the highest risk. And often I don't believe even the community fully understand that. I think a lot of workers do, you know, they do that safety planning, but I think the community still haven't grasped that, you know, I've got a spare bed, come and stay at my place. You know, not understanding those are the factors that'll go with separation and there's a lot of interest now in coercive control and you know the push to um, legislate it but I get concerned when I hear about coercive control and what it is and you know people are able to list off a whole raft of things that constitute it but two things that are absent from that whole conversation is um, to me Coercive control is a list of laws, virtually rules. You know, you can't go out, you can't wear these, don't ring these people. But no one talks about the what happens if those rules are infringed. So you're not allowed to go and visit your mother. What happens if you do? What happens if you're late home from work? So it is about the rule infringement and it is about the um, often the punishment that goes with that. But the th second thing that's more dangerous that we're not talking about is when parent control, when a perpetrator starts to lose it. And when someone leaves, that's what starts to happen. 
they start to lose that grip that parent control has wrought around their partner. And the more that they can't access them, they can't see them, they can't ring them, the more desperate they are, the more desperate they are to get that parent control back. And that's when we see them, you know, buying flowers and all sorts of gifts. But if they don't work or if they can't access their partner, they become very dangerous. And I think that's the key to separation is that whole, you know, we talk about parent control, let's talk about loss of parent control, which I see as more dangerous. The second one is stalking and that goes, they all interwove. I don't think we can take one, Colleen, and not look at it. So stalking, you know, that pattern of, um, it's also a course of, uh, of events like parent control. Um, and again, there seems to be the mistaken belief that stalking is something that happens after they leave, you know, watching them from outside work, following them, following them online, tracking them. But the more we understand coercive control also as a lot of stalking behaviours, even before a woman leaves, you know, rummaging through their handbags and checking their phones and checking where they're going all the time, the more we understand coercive control behaviours that constitute stalking. I call them the resident in stalking, you know, that the more we know that, the more we'll understand when they leave. Of course, that behaviour is going to accelerate. I don't believe it starts when they leave. I believe there's all those patterns there prior to. The other is sexual violence. I still don't think we screen well enough for this. So I think that intimate partner, sexual violence, again, is a... Is a uh, an enormous red flag. I think that, um, you know, we found through the death reviews, um, for instance, that sexual jealousy, particularly for Indigenous women, was an enormous red flag. That, um, you know, that, that often drives coercive control and um, the stalking. You know, we hear people talk about they're jealous. Yeah, they're jealous of what? You know, they're not jealous that they've got more money in the bank. They're not jealous that, you know, they're more popular. They're jealous. It's a sexual propriety, you know, who always accusing them of affairs and those things well before they leave as well. So the other part of sexual jealousy to keep in mind is that a reasonable proportion of strangulation occurs within the act of... Um, sexual intimacy and I use that word not sexual violence because sometimes a victim may consent to sex and then the strangulation occurs and um, you know they're not realizing that consenting to sex and consenting to strangulation aren't the same thing that you know you can't consent to an act that could possibly kill you so it's educating women that even if they're having consensual sex they shouldn't be consenting to sex. 98% of victims of strangulation are women um, that are often coerced into strangulation during sex. And tragically in the UK, uh, rough sex gone wrong became the biggest defence of intimate partner homicides and the UK government has now passed laws that uh, banned that defence in intimate homicides. Thanks, Betty. And a very sombre note and 
so that as we move towards the end of this podcast, we, we think about the future and you've been doing this work a long time now, what gives you hope? What keeps you going in this line of work? Um, I guess we always have to have hope that what we're doing makes a difference. And, you know, to me, hope is something that we have individually as well as collectively. And I don't think we can do this work really well if we don't have hope. I think the hope that we drive um, within ourselves or comes from within ourselves is, you know, all the time, I guess, looking forward, but looking back, you know, we need to look back to see sometimes to see how far we've come and we look forward to see what the possibilities are. I don't think we can get, you know, bogged down in, oh, this is just awful and I've got so many cases and it's all awful. I think that sometimes we don't even see the difference we're doing, but we've got to be out there making that difference. And like strangulation, you know, 15 years ago, we weren't even having that conversation. And I think as we move forward, there'll be new challenges come up, but we always rise to them and and meet them. I don't think we'd achieve much if we didn't do that and didn't have hope that we're all out there making a difference and making a collective difference. So we can have individual hope. We can have collective hope within our work, but we've got to be inspiring the women out there experiencing domestic violence with hope, you know, that they can have a brighter and better future. You know, talked one of the talks I gave last year was talking about, you know, we walk, we only walk so far with women. But it's like we walk to the top of the mountain and show them beyond that what those possibilities are out there. And I think that's what hope is, that at the end of the day, you know, they can have a better life and better life for themselves and their children. Betty, thank you. That's a lovely way to end. You've taken us to the top of a mountain and now we can look beyond it. So as always, it's been an absolute privilege spending time with you and learning from you. And I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this edition of The Bulb. So thank you so much, Betty Taylor. Oh, thank you for having me. We hope you found this edition of The Bulb enlightening. If you'd like to know more about our work, please visit noviolence.org.au. For victims and survivors of gendered violence who may have found the content of this podcast disturbing, free, confidential 24-hour counselling is available nationally on 1800 737 732 through 1800 RESPECT. If you would like to know more about responding to domestic and family violence, CQ University offers a range of postgraduate and other study options. Visit cqu.edu.au and search courses for domestic violence to learn more.